Prime Minister Kevin Rudd called for a media royal commission. News Corp and Murdoch have done enormous damage to Western democracy. Mr Rudd submitted more than half a million signatures to the House of Representatives. Supporting Kevin Rudd's cause, his former Liberal Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert and you're at The Listening Post. Here are the media stories that we're focusing on this week. In Australia, two former Prime Ministers joined forces to take on the power of Rupert Murdoch's media empire. The debate in France over secularism and free speech. President Macron doesn't like some of the coverage. Uttar Pradesh, the biggest state in India, is a dangerous place from which to report. And give us this day our daily coronavirus briefing. Announcing a vaccine. And forgive governments their trespasses. No country is more familiar with Rupert Murdoch and life under one dominant media player than the land of his birth, Australia. Politicians there have come and gone, but Murdoch's influence over how the country has been governed has been a constant for nearly six decades. The year 2020 has brought this issue to a head. About 65% of Australia's print outlets belong to Murdoch's News Corp Australia. And the coverage that the company has brought to the pandemic, those huge bushfires, as well as the climate change issue, has outraged its critics. More than half a million Australians have now signed a petition demanding that their government investigate the Murdoch media empire and the influence it has on their lives. They've been led by two former prime ministers who have turned on Murdoch. The current PM, Scott Morrison, hasn't so no one expects him to approve the formal inquiry that his predecessors want. Still, this petition may just be the beginning of a reckoning, and the way that News Corp Australia has responded suggests that the company knows it has a problem on its hands. Our starting point this week is the land down under. Rupert Murdoch and the journalists who work for him have never faced this kind of scrutiny before, not in Australia. Two former prime ministers from rival political parties joining forces, calling Murdoch's brand of journalism propaganda, a cancer on Australia's democracy. A petition signed by more than half a million citizens demanding their government investigate the effect that corporate concentration in the media has had on the way the country is governed. Rupert Murdoch has been in the news business in Australia for more than half a century. He's proven resilient. But the year 2020 has produced some momentous news stories that are taking their toll on News Corp Australia and its reputation. Two things have led to the scrutiny that we're seeing at the moment of the Murdoch media empire in Australia. One is Donald Trump and the other is the COVID pandemic. Australians have been much more aware of the impact that Fox News and Murdoch's advocacy for Trump has had in the United States, how it's led to American democracy looking in absolute disarray. And the other major factor has been the way in which the Murdoch press and media outlets in Australia have reported the pandemic. In Victoria particularly, there was a huge second wave and the Labor Premier, Dan Andrews, imposed a strong lockdown and it's been very successful. The Murdoch press gave him a very hard time. Every day there were front page headlines against him. And this actually put many members of the public off. But there's been this long-term growing dissatisfaction, especially with its coverage of climate change. 
And that was huge in Australia last summer when we had a, a terrible bushfire season. And there were articles in The Australian, which is the Murdoch flagship newspaper in Australia, strongly suggesting that this was due to arsonists intending to play down the role of climate change, which was pretty outrageous. And the Murdoch press is part of the environment, which has enabled the current government to still not really have a comprehensive energy policy. What has changed now from the way that Murdoch and the Murdoch press wielded this influence in the past is that before there was a kind of fig leaf of fairness and that has gone. It's become much more virulent and there are some former politicians who are able to articulate the kind of fed upness that many other people in Australian society feel. And not just any politicians, former prime ministers. Both Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull spent about three years in that job and have since blamed Rupert Murdoch and News Corp Australia for their subsequent falls from power. The company certainly has the clout. Roughly two out of three newspapers sold in the country, including The Australian, the only national paper, are Murdoch-owned, as is the 24-hour news channel, Sky News Australia. The petition for a full-scale Royal Commission investigation into the Murdoch factor in Australian politics was Kevin Rudd's idea. Rudd, however, has some history he needs to get past. As the company put it to us, it's also important to remember Mr. Rudd's disproportionate and unseemly efforts to ingratiate himself with News Corp Australia when he was Labour Party leader both in opposition and government. Just because you're a hypocrite doesn't make you wrong. He had no choice. The, the level of power wielded, especially by the Australian, meant that he could either try and get an unfavourable treatment or get a favourable one. He tried to get a favourable one and part of the pushback and the rage that we're seeing for, from him is the fact that he was spurned and was ultimately pulled down in part, if not by Murdoch, at least with Murdoch's assistance. And you'll see that the current two major party leaders are not talking much about the petition or the possibility of a royal commission. They're avoiding that conversation because it's too provocative in Australian politics to take on the Murdoch media. And that's absolutely part and parcel of our system and it has been for quite a long time. No one really expects the Royal Commission inquiry to happen. That's the government's call. And the current PM, Scott Morrison, won't risk alienating Murdoch. But Morrison does not control the upper house of parliament, the Senate, which will conduct its own inquiry into media diversity in Australia. News Corp Australia will be a key media company in focus, but not the only one. And the inquiry will lack the mandate to subpoena witnesses the way a royal commission can. News Corp's initial coverage of the petition story was to ignore it, let it blow over. As the signatures piled up, it changed tack, targeting Kevin Rudd with some questionable reporting. Stories that some of the petition names were fake, produced by bots in Bangladesh. Attempts to tie Rudd to the disgraced American financier, Jeffrey Epstein, the pedophile, who Rudd says he's never met. The company also made one of its newspaper editors, Paul Kelly, available for a televised encounter with former PM Malcolm Turnbull that turned into a confrontation. How offensive, how biased, how destructive does it have to be, Paul, before you will say, one of our greatest writers and journalists, it's enough, I'm out of it. 
I mean, how long will you how keep apologising? How yeah, dare you? I am. Just, no, just I, Malcolm, I, how don't dare say, you I tell start you, telling I tell me you say how what I should do in terms of my career? Paul Kelly is one of the leading political journalists in Australia and has been since the 1970s. Essentially what you're doing is uh, you're transferring your own political failures and you're wishing to blame our company for them. And he's become a sort of apologist for the Murdoch press, which is a shame really because he had a very distinguished journalistic career, but it was quite breathtaking television. And it was largely about climate change scepticism. It's okay to be a propagandist for one side, but if one is a critic or skeptic about some of yep. these issues, that's not okay. And, and the thing I found surprising was that Kelly argued that the paper was presenting a diversity of views and that other media were presenting sort of propaganda on uh, climate change and therefore there was no problem with also presenting a sceptical view. And Turnbull said... The company you work for and its friends in politics like Trump and others have turned this issue of physics into an issue of values or identity. That was a, a powerful exchange. They're obviously feeling much more able to talk about these things than they were obviously when they're in power. News Corp and Murdoch have done enormous damage to Western democracy and in particular to the United States and Australia. And they're now determined, it seems, to point them out um, very publicly, which is new and must be very confronting for the Murdoch media because part of its power has been that politicians dare not speak against it. Controlling 65% of the print media market in Australia actually represents a step back for Rupert Murdoch and his company. That figure used to be higher. Between selling some papers off and the digital diversification of journalism everywhere, News Corp Australia is not as influential as it was at its height. The upcoming Senate inquiry will examine that and could well shed some light on the dark side of media, Murdoch and politics in Australia. What will really be fascinating in Australia is this would be an occasion in which people can appear before Parliament and give evidence about the Murdoch media empire's influence on them. So politicians, former politicians, will talk about what is happening behind the scenes, and that's very important. There's too much fear of speaking out against this organisation. That's how powerful it's been over many decades. So I think would be a very important moment for Australian politics. It's been a given or accepted that you could not win power in Australia unless Murdoch was on side. The raw vote-pulling power of the Murdoch press has largely gone. And this is partly a story about the decline of the mainstream media, of course, not only Murdoch. There is still that agenda-setting power. So it's still got power, but it's not that raw sort of power that you know, was certainly the case 30 years ago. And, you know, the level of hostility and, and sometimes hysteria with which the Murdoch properties in Australia are treating this shows that they are a bit worried about this kind of stuff, that maybe this time it won't go away. It's been six weeks now since a school teacher was beheaded in France after he showed his students cartoons mocking the Prophet Muhammad during a class on free speech. The political response, including from President Emmanuel Macron, continues to make headlines and has touched off a major debate in the country. Tarek Nafa has been following that story for us. Tarek, Macron says that international journalists have got France all wrong on this story. In what way? 
As you mentioned, Richard, this debate is taking place in the aftermath of the killing of Samuel Patty. He was a school teacher who used cartoons to make a point, cartoons that were at the center of another attack back in 2015 on the magazine Charlie Hebdo. After Patty's murder, President Macron called for the need of an enlightened Islam and condemned Muslim separatism in France. And the government is in tune here with voices on the far right who are calling for a more assertive defense of laicite, which is a form of French secularism intended to separate church and state, but which many say disproportionately impacts French Muslims. Macron says foreign reporters who criticize his policy towards French Muslims just don't understand laicite. He singled out Politico and the Financial Times, two newspapers in particular that he says should print retractions. Didn't stop there though, did he? He then uh, does an interview with the New York Times and in particular with their media columnist, Ben Smith. That's right, and in that interview, he says that English language media are biased and said some of them were, quote, legitimizing this violence. He says he doesn't care about color or religion, in his words, a person is first and foremost a citizen. Now, many French journalists and voices on the left would beg to differ. They say France's current troubles are at least in part to do with inequalities faced by French Muslims. Those voices have been dubbed traitors by others on the far right. And for more on the limits of French freedom of expression, take a listen to this from the Interior Minister Gérard Damanin speaking on Europe One, the French channel. Des parents qui vont voir un enseignant pour leur dire vous arrêtez d'enseigner les caricatures, la liberté d'expression, demain ce sera une incrimination pénale. Et un juge pourra dire, c'est extrêmement important, un juge pourra dire si vous êtes étranger, que vous êtes condamné à ce délit, vous pouvez quitter le territoire national. Okay, thanks, Tara. You won't find a media landscape bigger or more complex than India's. There are 22 official languages there, spoken across 28 states, and hundreds of news channels, along with thousands of newspapers and websites. Assessing the state of the media there is no easy task. You have to zoom right in. So we're focusing on India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh, or UP. With a population equal to that of Brazil's, 200 million plus, UP has been notorious for its dirty politics and the brazen intimidation of journalists. Over the past few years, conditions for the media have grown much worse under a chief minister who wears the garb of a Hindu monk and is from India's far-right-aligned ruling party, the BJP. The Listening Post's Minakshi Ravi now on journalism under dangerous trying conditions in Uttar Pradesh. It was mid-September, and in India, in the state of Uttar Pradesh, in a village called Hathras, a woman was gang raped. A gruesome, gruesome incident. A gang rape, she was strangulated, her tongue was cut off, she was found in a pool of blood. The victim was a Dalit, part of a community of people deemed to occupy the lowest rung in the Hindu caste system that pervades India and defines sociopolitics in Uttar Pradesh. This was a horrific rape case and it came at a time when there were so many rape cases emerging in Uttar Pradesh. Reporters covering the story of this rape knew going in that that was the context. The Hathras incident is a very straightforward one of the gang rape of a Dalit uh, or a marginalized uh, woman. 
by uh, allegedly upper caste men. The Hathras gang rape victim was given no dignity in death. She was accorded very little when she was alive. Somehow this case, because of the element of caste, domination, politics by the state government, has taken this bizarre turn. The police for days tried to deny that there's gang rape. Even now their official position is there was no rape. Uh, the police also virtually stole the dead body, kidnapped the dead body from the hospital and took it straight from a hospital in Delhi to Hathras. You can see right there, it's one in the midnight and the body has just reached the village. And the police locks up the family in their house and burns the body. The police, without even letting any family member know, they have burnt the body. Now, what was the dying hurry? The dying hurry was that the police wanted to prevent those morning visuals of the cremation. They wanted to prevent the family protesting with the dead body. They were trying to prevent the bad headlines. Not only did they not avoid bad press, the heavy-handed efforts by authorities in Uttar Pradesh to hush up the case just created more headlines. As journalists, we must ask questions. Sir, why media not you media? Sir, sir. We don't know about him. The Uttar Pradesh government barricaded that village both for the opposition parties and for the media. So clearly the authorities were very scared and hell-bent that the media both locally and from outside does not report this further. Yes, Ever since this government has come into power, it has seen every attempt at critical or investigative journalism as an enormous attack. The government has a very clear agenda. Media ko hai, media ko hai, media ko hai. To suppress the media, suppress the media, suppress the media. The way the media has been gagged here in UP is tantamount to an undeclared emergency. Uttar Pradesh is hugely significant in Indian politics. It's the most populous of Indian states, with more than 200 million people. That's more than most nations in the world. Successive state governments have intimidated and sought to control the media. Journalists have seen that pressure get significantly worse. They say the shift came in 2017, when, three years after the right-wing Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, won national elections and Narendra Modi became Prime Minister, the BJP swept to victory in state elections and took power in UP. Among the new challenges for reporters, the BJP's appointment of a chief minister, who goes by the title of Yogi Adityanath. Chief Minister is a dyed-in-the-wool Hindu chauvinist politician who makes no bones about the fact that any reporting that runs counter to the official narrative will be treated as hostile, will be treated as a criminal act. Particularly uh, reports that highlight caste atrocities because an important part of the BJP's political narrative is that they speak on behalf of Hindus. And how do you speak on behalf of Hindus? if the system oppresses people of so-called lower castes. 
there's just so much government obsession with managing the narrative, controlling the narrative, preventing any incident from coming out, threatening phone calls, a sense of surveillance, a sense of fear and paranoia amongst UP journalists. I've been reporting for the past 35 years and some stories attract a lot of negative attention. In March, a colleague and I went to a village called Koiripur. In the absence of any other nutrition, children there were being fed a type of wild grass. As soon as we posted the story online, all hell broke loose as if I had committed a heinous crime. The regional administration said the story was false. At 2 a.m., the district magistrate, in clear violation of the lockdown rules, pulled the villagers out of their homes and tried to pressure them into changing their story. The magistrate even ordered some of them to collect the wild grass. And the next morning, he and his son were photographed eating that grass. He issued a statement saying that these were actually a kind of lentil crop and that we had sensationalized the story. I was served an order to retract my piece. Instead of dealing with the issue of starvation, the authorities were solely focused on killing this story. The environment is such on the ground that no matter what you do, you are going to face some kind of consequence for even reporting the most basic report. There have been cases of journalists who were uh, caught by the railway police because they were reporting about uh, uh, the bad conditions of the railway tracks and that journalist was beaten up, was taken to the police station for two hours and in fact the journalist also says that the police urinated in his mouth. We got in touch with the UP government's Department of Information, which, in the wake of all the bad press following the Hathras gang rape, has had new officials appointed to it. Our interview request was declined, as was our follow-up request for written responses to questions. In April this year, the Committee to Protect Journalists published a report on the media climate in Uttar Pradesh. It documented cases of brutal beatings of journalists and even the killing of one just months after Yogi Adityanath took power in 2017. That report came out as the UP government kicked things up a notch by taking on national journalists. In June, Supriya Sharma, editor-in-chief of a news website called thescroll.in, reported on extreme hunger in a village in a district in Uttar Pradesh called Varanasi which happens to be Prime Minister Narendra Modi's constituency. UP police began an investigation into her for defamation and the spread of misinformation. Just a few months before that, Siddharth Varadarajan, editor-in-chief of a news outlet called The Wire, was issued a police summons for a report he did. We ran a story uh, just when the pandemic was taking hold about how the Chief Minister of Uttar Pradesh had actually attended a religious event on the first day of the lockdown in defiance of what the Prime Minister had said. And so a case was filed against us for that report and for another tweet in which a quote had been misattributed to the Chief Minister. So on, in, in the middle of the pandemic, you had a posse of policemen with a summons for me to appear and to answer questions. And then we were able to get anticipatory bail or protection from the Allahabad High Court. But other journalists are not so fortunate. <laughs> It's been nearly two months since the gang rape and murder of a woman in Uttar Pradesh became national news. Amidst all of the negative coverage, Yogi Adityanath's government has gone on the offensive, 
hiring a Mumbai-based PR firm to send out press releases saying the victim had never been raped in the first place. Dozens of police investigations have been opened into journalists, activists, and opposition politicians. And the government has said there is an international conspiracy to defame Uttar Pradesh and stir up communal tensions. You know what worries me about UP today? UP has always been bad with law and order and crime and caste violence. It did not certainly appear with the BJP. But what worries me about UP is the sense of impunity. I think if it succeeds politically, is a model that we will see more and more in the rest of India. And that really worries me. And finally, must-watch TV that many people just can't bring themselves to watch, the daily coronavirus briefing. Like many governments, the UK provides regular updates on the numbers, the social distancing rules, and takes questions. There's a theatrical aspect to this, and what you may not know about politicians reading off teleprompters, the way I am, is that sometimes it isn't just a script up there. There can also be suggestions about the way a line should be delivered, which words should be emphasized, the placement of the pause. That's what a couple of British comedians, Larry and Paul from the city of Leeds, have focused on in this next video, the staged manner of the delivery. Not that we, dismissive tone, would ever do that. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post. A motionless greeting, announcing a vaccine. Self-satisfied grin, claiming all the credit, bizarre a rehearsed metaphor. We're injecting hope into the arms of millions. Pause, proud of that. Confident look, stating the vaccine will be 90% effective in the 1% of people we successfully get it to. Taking question uh, from a member of the public whose social class I have never encountered in real life. Query about mass testing, follow-up question about government corruption and nepotism around PPE contracts. Blindsided uh, by intelligent question from Pleb, stalling for time, understanding that there are question marks over companies getting millions in public money, announcing a full and thorough independent public inquiry which will be led by my wife.